Hi, this is Tavi Nasir, and you're listening to Leader Lab. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Tavi Nasir. Uh, I am an award-winning leadership writer, speaker, and a uh, keynote speaker and coach. Uh, that's what I often have on my signature uh, on my emails. And basically, I work with uh, leaders of executives, managers to help them build their leadership competencies. How can they do a better job being the kind of leader their employees need them to be? How can they help facilitate? Not only the growth of their organization, but the growth of their employees so they can help their organizations become more resilient, more adaptive, more innovative, and more prosperous for everyone, not just the shareholders, but for the employees and the community in which they serve. Uh, so that's the driving force upon what I do. I'm also, uh, as as you, meant, uh, as you I mentioned, a uh, leadership writer. I've been writing for five years now, uh, and I've been talking about leadership for a good number of years. Um, and I, I love the process of writing, which is obviously why it naturally is the segue to having to sit down and write your first book. Um, and I say first because my brain is already working on number two and I'm trying to keep it quiet so I can savor the moment of having the first one out. <laughs> Very true. So, so what I love about that question, I have to, I have to back up. What I love about that question is there, there are all sorts of accolades that, that we can bestow upon you because you've been making a huge impact. But what I love about that is you focused in on the work and the purpose. And that purpose guides you in a lot of things. And I, I knew that. And, uh, and I know that you knew that. And I wanted to make sure more people knew that. That one of the reasons for all of the writings that you've done all over the place, uh, one of the reasons for the, the I'm predicting it, self-fulfilling success of, of Leadership Vertigo is exactly that reason. You're a purpose-driven person. Even when you know that there's a second book out here, there's the purpose of the first one. And so that's, let's focus in on that. Uh, I, I'm giving you a fair warning. I'm going to ask about what future plans are a little bit later. But for now, let's celebrate this new book, uh, Leadership Vertigo. Now, this is, a, this is a term that, admittedly, I had never seen before you came up with the sort of idea. So you're coining a phrase around this Leadership Vertigo. And I think maybe let's start there. Um, talk about where this term comes from. What is Leadership Vertigo? And, and what impact does it have on our leadership? Okay, sure. Um, you know, I love to keep things simple. I like to have this term. I say it's got to be a fundamental truth. The minute you hear it, it just resonates. So Leadership Vertigo essentially refers to that gap between how we as leaders view our leadership and how our employees experience it. Um, and I've noticed this in a lot of my writings and in the talks I've given and in the work I've done with a lot of leaders that they do have that issue where they're making certain initiatives, they're putting forward certain um, objectives and projects, hoping that this is what's going to rally the troops, this is what's going to get people invested in the initiative and yet it falls flat when it when it reaches the employees and they can't for life understand they do the 360s they get those informations of the where their competencies need to be focused on but they don't find how come there is that difference between on some days it seems like we're all on the same boat we're rowing together and then other times I go into a meeting and it's like I'm getting all this resistance where is this coming from and so this is where uh, the book focuses on. It's not to say we're trying to add to the leadership material because there's so much great material out there, but it's to answer that question. If we're all aware of all these studies, of what it is that we need to do to motivate our employees, to keep them engaged in the conversation, why is it then that for at least a decade now, we're consistently seeing these low levels of employee engagement levels, the productivity levels aren't improving, so many organizations are struggling to innovate, 
despite all the information we have at our disposal about gamification and all these things, why are we having such a difficult time? And it's because of this thing called leadership vertigo, where we have a gap at times between what we think we're doing, what we're communicating to our employees, and what's really landing in terms of how our employees are experiencing what it's like to be a member of our organization. Yeah, and I think that's a it's a huge gap, and I love that that you address it because I, you know, when I work with organizations, so often, if you talk to the people, I, this is a little bit mean, but let's back up. There's an assumption that the people who are at the top of the organization are at the top of the organization because they're exceptional leaders. And what I think is great about that is that is that they at least recognize they're in a role of exceptional impact. But the truth is often that's not the only reason they're at the top of the hierarchy, right? And, and what's really funny is to climb up an organizational hierarchy and to get to a position of leadership, you actually first have to be an incredible manager. And, and we could go on all, all day about the semantics between leadership and management. Suffice it to say that they're two different skill sets, skill sets, and they are driven by two different principles, two different sets of purposes, all of those sort of things. And so what you end up resulting is people relying on past experiences of what would work to rally the troops now, to build community now, those sort of things. And in reality, those are based on their one experiences, which is great. Experience is a great teacher. But, you know, as you know, uh, I'm all about the, the, the combination of lots of people's experiences. This is what I love about all of the empirical research that you, you just talked about and that you talk about in the book is that they are sample sizes of way more than one. They are the greatest leaders and the worst leaders compared and contrasted in seeing what actually works a consistent set of the time instead of just past experiences. I, I felt like as I was reading it that that's my sort of that's the cause of this sort of gap. But I love that you address that there is that, that gap in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of times, actually, when you were talking about how people get into leadership positions, there was a study that I, I wrote about on my blog, I think a year or two ago, where they were showing how still we're seeing people moving into management positions, leadership positions, as a means of uh, reward. You know, we want to make sure we retain this key talent in the organization. So we're going we're gonna to bump you up into a leadership position, give you that, that corner office, give you a team that you're going to report to and so forth. And on paper, that sounds great. But the problem that I've seen, and I've actually now had a few uh, new clients who are new leaders, and they're now realizing this, is that you're now actually taking on a whole new job. It's not like you're taking on a new, you're not taking just a new rung on the ladder. You're literally jumping to a whole different ladder, which requires a whole different set of competencies and understandings, which is what that project Google Oxygen pointed out how you know the technical competencies that we usually tend to focus on and say well that's why I'm going to bump you into a leadership position no longer really translates when you go into a leadership position where we're looking at a whole other set and that's where I see we have that challenge where leaders walk in saying well look what got me to where I am as you mentioned those experiences what worked in the past is not really helping to articulate or help me understand what my employees need now to help us move forward. And that really does help to broaden that gap because we're looking at it from the wrong vantage point. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, it's a, it's a huge irony. It's a giant organizational irony that like you were a great salesperson. And so we're going to reward you by making you a mediocre sales manager. 
right? Right. So we're going to take, we're going to lose one good salesperson and we're going to, in opportunity costs, we're going to lose a great leader and a great manager by, by rewarding you with exactly what your skill sets and strengths don't do. Now, that said, I think there are people who still want to do that. You know, there were people who, who entered into certain organizations with the desire to be leaders and, and are working through and are, are facing that idea. And that's what I think is, to me, the sort of perfect target audience for the book is you're in this role and you've become self-aware about this gap in your own leadership ability. How do you begin to uh, clear up, if you will? How do you begin to get less dizzy in your leadership vertigo? Uh, how do you alleviate the symptoms? And, and this is one of the other things I really enjoyed about the book. There's so much leadership literature out there about casting a vision and being motivational and inspirational and all of these things. And very first principle you talk about, chapter two in the book, right? Chapter one is here's what is here's what it is and how to recognize if you've got it and its impact. Chapter two is build community, which is different than casting a vision and spreading out, here's my desire for all of you. Building a community is different because it says like, well, let's let's start with the idea that community and our community of people is is most important. And now where do we want to go? But talk talk a little bit about why that building community is so important that you decided to make it principle one. Well, well, you know, when we were just trying to figure out the principles of the book, obviously what you want to start off is in the area that leaders like to spend most of their time, which is in the big picture, looking at the grand vision of where we want to be in three to five years. And when you're in that perspective, we really got to understand the thing that we've seen in so many studies about motivation, how it's not the external motivators of, of uh, pay incentives, of prestige, of, of those type of rewards that are really going to drive people long term. It's the sense of feeling an intrinsic thing of understanding that the work I do matters. What's the purpose behind our efforts? And for us to be able to create that, we got to go to that core psychological need we all have of relatedness, of feeling a connection not only to the work we do, but to those around us. And the only way we can do that is by making people understand we're part of a community. We're part of an organization that's driven around a shared purpose and that we're not just a task-oriented organization where I just need you to come in and do this one thing and then that way we can just put the next widget in and keep proceeding like in an assembly line process. So the, it was very important to start off with community because, again, uh, if we look at um, – the issue that some people have when they get into leadership positions and they're trying to figure out how do I get people on board, we got to understand what it is that your employees are after. What is it that matters to them? And then tie that to what matters to our organization. And I think part of the problem that I see a lot of uh, organizations and leaders do is they focus on the second part of that equation. What matters to our organization? But they fail to take into account understanding what matters to their employees and how to connect that. Because people want to know when they walk in the, into their workplace, today I'm going to contribute something and it's going to matter. It's going to make a difference. It's not just I'm just filling in a slot. I'm just helping to push the paper along. And then eventually somewhere down the road, this might lead to something. They see a direct, tangible connection between what I'm contributing right now and the overall uh, purpose of the organization. So that was why this was the very important place to begin that conversation of how do we ensure that we are narrowing that gap between our understanding of our leadership and how our employees experience it. Yeah, and I think you know one of the ironies is that outside of organizational leadership, the leaders that actually do inspire the the Martin Luther Kings of the world, right, and of history. They actually started with community first too. You know, as as um, as Simon Sinek, who's an incredibly inspirational person, who thankfully is beginning to learn more and more about research. And so this is one of the insights he has that I think is backed by research. As he often says, no one showed up on the mall to watch Martin Luther King speak to watch him speak. Everyone showed up for them. 
and mm-hmm. for the idea that they were going to be a part of the impact and what they were doing in that moment matters. And that's what I think the best the best leaders do. Once you build that community, you can figure out where does this community want to go? And, and hopefully you can do it in such a way that it lines in an organizational context with the organization's goals. But to be honest with you, if it doesn't, maybe it's time to rethink the organization's goals, not rethink the community, right? Because you're operating on this assumption that you can you could maybe get new people who are in line with the organization's goals. But if that's not the why, if that's not what drives the organization, then maybe it's time to figure out a new purpose. Absolutely. I mean, I'll take you one step further uh, it, with the example you brought Martin Luther King. Another good example is Nelson Mandela. Look how much he resonated and still resonates with people around the world. Yet how many of us could really relate to that notion of apartheid and living under that kind of an environment? We can empathize with how difficult it must have felt for those who were victimized by that kind of demo- that kind of government or organization. But we still felt the connection to Nelson Mandela. We're still quoting him. And why is that? Because everything he did wasn't about him. It was about engendering that sense of community, of belonging, that we were all part of this big family tree. And so when he spoke, we didn't feel like he was only talking to the South Africans. We felt like he was talking to us. And that really is, like you said with Martin Luther King Jr., that really is that notion of how we are binding people to a shared purpose because we're creating that sense of community of why this matters and how you belong to helping make that vision a reality. Yeah, totally. And of course, the irony is that we we want the end result, the inspiration, the vision, the, the, the motivation. And so we focus on, on how to do that when in reality, that comes secondhand and comes naturally out of building this this community. I, I look at uh, one of the other in an organizational context models I look at all the time is in leading change and, and Dr. John Cotter with the idea that the vision doesn't come first. The first things besides sense of urgency is building a coalition, building a team, building community, right? So we mm. see this again and again, and I love that, that you put it in right in the very beginning of this leadership vertigo, because I think it's one of the, to be honest, I think it's one of the things that can cause uh, maybe the headaches associated with leadership vertigo to, to overplay the metaphor, is that we think, let's focus in on inspiration, let's focus in on casting a vision. And in reality, every organizational expert, yourself included, realizes it's community and it's community's purpose and it's community's motivations first. Vision is an outgrowth of that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, if we think about how many times uh, we look at those inspirational people who we, we revere and we look up to and we admire the, the, the results that they created, we all realize that it wasn't Martin Luther King who helped to bring about an end to segregation on his own. It's because he motivated us to want to be involved because he connected us to that vision that was said, this matters to us. We want to see this change. And he just became that a lightning rod, if you will, to help us have a common connection to one another and to that work we're going to now do to make that a reality. So in very much like you're saying, he started off by saying, let's first make us feel like we belong, that we're connected, that what we're going to do going forward matters. And now let's articulate what that is, so that we're already going to be on board with it because we feel like I'm here to work with you, to collaborate with you, because this is going to create something meaningful and valuable, not just for those who are going to be receiving what we're creating, but also for ourselves in terms of what we're doing with our lives, with our talents, our creativity, and our insights. Hmm. Now, I don't, uh, I, I want to transition a bit. I don't want to give away the store. Because I want people to check out the book and I want people to look at some of the insights in the book with fresh eyes and not with, oh, I heard them talk about it. So I'm going to skip to my other favorite principle on here. 
and we'll cover that one. So I want you to know we're not we're not giving away the store. There's way more in the book. Check it out. But it's this idea around earning credibility. And what I liked about it is that the chapter title is earning credibility. And we know that, you know, as a leader, we need to be sort of we need to gain respect, gain credibility, etc. But what I love is that you open that chapter not with uh, here's how to look credible, right? Fake it till you make it, that sort of stuff. You you open with authenticity as the precursor to credibility and the need to gain credibility, you open with this idea of authenticity. Talk, talk a little bit about the need to be so authentic. I feel like it's something that should be natural, but sort of doesn't, especially to those leaders we were talking about who were great salespeople, great individual contributors, and now find themselves in a leadership role. I feel like so often there's this need to fake that we already know how to lead. And when in reality, authenticity is the answer to our credibility problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, if we recognize that what we're talking about is a gap between how we view our leadership, like when I walk into the office, this is what I want people to perceive as my leadership and what they experience it. This is really critical that we understand that we're we want to make sure we're being genuine about what our real competencies are, what we really are able to bring to the table, that we aren't faking like, well, I know what needs to be done to resolve this issue, that we're not afraid of admitting, look, I don't have all the answers, I don't have all the solutions, but I know that if we work together, that's where we're going to have the best results, the best outcomes, because now we're not relying on one person to find the solution. We have multiple and I have actually a story that I, I something I encountered. I actually ended up sharing in one of my talks, at one of my keynotes. Um, when I went to visit Chicago, I always like when I go visit a town. I always like to go and actually visit the the, the city. You know, I like taking the public transit and stuff like that because that's where you get to really get a feel for the city and 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 its experience. And when you go to Chicago, you got to take those elevated trains, right? You got to take the CTA. And when I boarded the train at the airport to get into Chicago. Um, just before we left, the janitor came and was walking down the whole train car and he was saying something to people and I couldn't quite make it out at first until he reached me. And what he was basically saying to everyone was, hey, thank you for using the CTA. We appreciate your business. And he was so quick in doing it. And at first I thought, well, that's interesting. I've never seen a janitor uh, at a public transit authority going as part of his job and thanking people for using uh, public transit. But then what occurred to me more was how he was just being so uh, like, okay, I'm just going to say it because I've been like, this is part of my requirements to do, that there didn't feel any genuineness in him saying that. So when he said it, it pretty much failed in terms of what the, his bosses wanted, which was that people feel appreciation that we are trying to reduce congestion, we're trying to reduce pollution in our city, and we're trying to use a service that the city is providing to help us get to our jobs. Because he really didn't feel connected. And I remember telling the people at the keynote, I said, now imagine, I'm not saying he has to actually spend, like, he has to spend all his time talking to us one-on-one. -on -one, but imagine if he, instead of going down the whole car and saying this thing, like, in this monotonous tone, he just goes to the front of the car and says, excuse everyone, I'd like to have your attention. I just wanted to let you know how much we appreciate you taking the train today. I know you could have taken your car, you could have taken a cab, and you get right where you want as opposed to getting off and you have to take down the stairs off the elevated track to go and then walk to your office. But I want to let you know how much we appreciate your help at reducing the congestion in our city and as well as being more environmentally conscious. So when you go out today, know that you're, the fact that you're here today is really being appreciated and we're grateful for it. It's really simple. I even timed it with everyone when I did it. It was like 45 seconds. So it's not a big thing. It actually took up longer to go down the train car to thank each one of us. But the impact would have been so much more significant because we would have felt it was genuine. You're not saying this to portray this notion of, well, okay, we want to demonstrate that we're grateful to people. 
but you really actually mean this. This is something you really believe in. So in terms of leadership, this is the same thing we got to recognize, especially when we look at how faster-paced uh, in global environment we're now operating, where things change so quickly. We can't have all the answers, and that's okay. We have to be okay with that because if we want to have that sense of community, people need to know that they can contribute, that their insights, their experiences, their talents count and can be involved in the decision-making process by informing us of where we need to be looking to resolve issues and where we need to be looking as hidden opportunities to help organization go forward. So that's where we, when we talk about credibility, it's not like you said, it's not the fake it till you make it. It's really about being genuine about what it is you stand for, what it is you want to contribute, and what it is you're going to need to say, look, I'm going to need your help to make sure we hit our target on this. So where are the things that I'm, I'm, that we need to be paying attention to more to make sure we're actually achieving that outcome? Yeah, and, and if, I can, if I can paraphrase a, uh, a leadership quote-unquote guru that will leave nameless, there's this fancy saying, it gets passed around all the time to newly appointed leaders, that you know people don't care how much you know to they know how much you care, and that's true, but when I read the earned credibility chapter and I think about it, I, I modify that phrase a little bit. I think it's that people don't care how much you know until they know what you care about. Mm. Right. And the fact that you care about it and the fact that you're genuine in what you in that you care about it and the fact that you I mean, I, I'm sure there are people who work for Chicago Transit that just care about having a job. And, and then there are other people who care about the impact that public transit has on a larger environment, the reducing congestion, all of those things. And it's not until people realize that you actually care about those things that they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubts around credibility. People don't care how much you know until they know what you care about. And by the way, if those two things are not aligned, then you should probably be successful as a leader elsewhere. Absolutely. In fact, you know what? There's a study, just to build on what you just said, that has demonstrated that we experience our work in one of three ways. We either experience it as a job, as a career, or as a calling. Now, obviously, if you're like a doctor or if you're a fire, a, you know, firefighter, you probably no doubt see your work as a calling. Now, in the case of janitors, one would think, well, I, don't, I can't see how anyone being a janitor would say, well, their work's a calling. But researchers actually looked at hospital cleaners and they did find that while the majority of them said, you know, it's just a job or it's a career and it's boring and not very interesting, they did in fact find that a third of the hospital cleaners said, this is a calling. And these employees were far more creative and they were far more engaging with the hospital staff and with the patients than those who weren't. And it was because these, their leaders had understood well, how do we connect what matters to you? What's going to make you feel like what you do here matters and makes a difference with the, what the organization's long-term goals and objectives are, which is obviously to provide a safe, healthy environment for people to uh, get health care and get better. And so this janitor could have very easily been the kind who felt like his work was a calling if the organization understood what mattered to him and how do we connect it to what matters to our organization, which again goes back to that notion of creating that sense of community and belonging among our employees. You know, as you were thinking about that, I was actually thinking about, uh, mostly because I'm a Disney kid, uh, but I was thinking about Walt Disney World. And I bet you that there are janitors in, in Walt Disney World's campus that truly do view it as a calling. And, and ironically, one of the reasons is that providing a clean, safe, enjoyable, magical experience is, is everybody's job. So much so that I, I can remember watching an interview one time on, on television with Michael Eisner. And, and say what you will about Michael Eisner as a, as a boardroom negotiator. But they're doing this interview on ABC or NBC or something like that. And in the middle of the interview, Michael Eisner 
bends down, kneels down, and picks up a piece of trash and puts it in his pocket to throw away later. They were Everyone in the organization cared so much about providing that magical experience that even the CEO made cleaning part of his job. Now, the question is how much easier if your most of your job is cleaning that environment and making it look perfect, how much more engaged and how much more aligned with that uh, vision, that calling are you when even your leadership sees as a vital part of their job? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the, the key point. If we, there, There's a quote I like sharing in, in a lot of my talks from Tony Shea where he says how you know people won't remember what you said or what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And that's the key thing that we need to recognize, that if people see that you're treating them more as a means to an end, look, I got so much on my plate. And that was one of the things I discussed in my last talk I gave this month. Where I said, look, I understand we're all really busy. We got more on our plate than we've ever had before because we have so many communication channels that we have no access to. I mean, we can't even leave our offices anymore. I kept seeing people at the conference. Uh, the minute there was a break, they're all like looking at their emails, responding to phone calls, and so forth. It wasn't like they left the office at all. And but I said to them, we have to be very mindful that in this environment, it's so easy for us just to say, I just need to get this work done. I just need to focus on getting these things done so I can move on to the next thing that our employees get stuck feeling more like a means to an end, that they're there just to help us push the process along. It becomes very industrial-minded in terms of being this kind of assembly line approach to our, our work. And when you do that, people aren't going to be motivated to try to bring their best to work. They're just going to feel like, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll just do that and that's it. Just like that janitor on that CTA where he's like been told, look, we want you to say this. And it's like, fine, I'll say it. I don't really care. And he's not invested in the message because he's not connected to it. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Now, how to get more people invested, how to how to bridge that leadership gap, those are the subjects of, of Leadership Vertigo. So I want to hope, I really hope that people check out the book for, for those reasons, to bring that uh, level of deep, deep motivating, but community and competence and credibility and compassion uh, driven motivation to their leadership capacity. If it's okay, though, I want to switch a bit from the book to you and ask you a couple questions. Sure. Uh, let, let people get to know you a little bit better. The, the first is what are you reading right now? Okay, what am I reading right now? Right now I'm reading actually uh, several books. <laughs> it seems like I keep getting so many copies. Uh, one of the books I'm reading right now is Focus by Heidi Grant Halverson. Uh, she's actually someone I'm hoping to have on my show uh, in, a, in, a few, in a few months. Uh, another one is uh, Mighty uh, Mid-Sized Businesses by Robert Schur. I think it just just I think it either just came out or it's about to come out. I can't remember. I think it just came out, um, and so I'm reading that one as well, which is really quite interesting because he's looking at a gap I've never really seen anyone discuss, which is we have small businesses and we have the large organizations, but what about those kind of in between where they don't have all the resources? of a major organization to test, do these little test experiments, but they don't have the agility of a small company where they can just quickly turn on a dime and so forth. So they got the two disadvantages of the respective groups. So how do they kind of work within this middle zone in a terms of addressing some of the challenges we see in today's environment? So those are the two that I am currently have on my, on, my, on my docket that I'm reading right now. Oh no, that's really cool, and and I am uh, I am a total fanboy for Heidi's work. Uh, uh, she's an she's an awesome person, but she also is a brilliant, brilliant researcher, oh, uh, she? and does a great job of bridging that leadership and and research and practice gap, uh, which is why you and I probably both love her. Yeah. Uh, so so a second question for you, and I know that we are in the midst of celebrating the arrival of the first child, but let's talk about future child. Let's talk about what's next for you. Well, uh, you know, I'm think 
a lot of people who've been a loyal readers of my book, uh, of my blog, I should say, not my book, when they start reading the book, they're going to start, if they've been paying attention, they'll notice that there's been a lot of breadcrumbs I've been uh, putting in my blog. Some of it obviously was predating when this book started work. But, you know, obviously when the book was in the way, I was testing out ideas to see what would resonate with people. Uh, and then that would help, you know, articulate what I wanted to be saying in the book because that's what was resonating with people. So I've been doing that even after, while I was writing this book. I've had this idea for the next one and I, even now I'm still peppering it in in both my talks and in my writings to see where it's where the interest is, and it's one that's going to allow me to go into my background. I come from a background of of science. I'm actually uh, I have my master's degree in pathology, um, and so I'm actually looking at looking at some of the uh, science, particularly in the field of neuroscience and leadership, some of the things of how our brain operates, and uh, helping us to understand why there's certain things that we don't understand in terms of our perception, in terms of what we communicate, in terms of what we understand and how it's really has to do less with our understanding, our technical competencies uh, and so forth and really more to do with how our brain operates. Uh, some people who've attended some of my talks have experienced some of the exercises I do and they always come out of that going like, okay, I, you know what, I, 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 I'm kind of like now having to like, I've become so self-conscious now that my brain does this. And I said, well, that's the whole point. Once you have that awareness, this is what your brain is doing as a shortcut to just try to get through stuff. Imagine how much we're being bombarded, how much your brain is really relying on those shortcuts to skip over stuff that is so critical that you're paying attention to so you can make sure you're making the right decisions. So that's the kind of thing that I'm looking at. I, I did a piece, for example, recently looking at continuous learning and leadership. And there I was using some of the ideas I want to explore in my next book. And I was delighted to see how, wow, people were like, oh, this is phenomenal. This is so fascinating. I want to learn more. So that's, that's the thing I'm trying to, I, I'm, I'm coaxing and working on for number two. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I, I think we don't, I think we don't spend enough thinking about thinking, as it were, and all of the things that, that come with that. So that, that's quite fascinating. We'll, we'll be, uh, I'll, I'll be paying attention to it, and I hope everybody listening will be as well. In the meantime, though, the book is Leadership Vertigo, While Even the Best Leaders Go Off Course and How They Can Get Back on Track. Tanvir, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really grateful to have you here. Hey everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab Podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.